You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I am a covenant member at Sojourn Heights, uh, just up the street, uh, and I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn Houston, which means uh, that, Lord willing, here in the next couple of years, um, I'll be stepping out uh, with a team of people from Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, Sojourn Galleria to, to plant, to start a new church somewhere in the city of Houston. And uh, we're excited to see what God will do uh, in that. And it is a joy and really an honor to be standing before you uh, this morning preaching from the book of John. Um, just, and just to say, you know, if this is your first time here at Sojourn, just like Liz said, um, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we really are. We, uh, we want you to know that you are welcome here uh, no matter where you come from, um, no matter where you are in this walk, as some people describe it, with God. Um, we want you to know that, that we welcome questions. Um, you're, if, if you have any questions about God, about Jesus, chances are everyone in the room has asked those same questions. And so know that, know that you're where you're supposed to be, um, and I don't believe that it's an accident that you're sitting in this room this morning. Uh, and so as we start, I'd like to pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We ask that by your spirit, you would reveal yourself to us, that you would help us to believe in the grace of Jesus this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's get started. I was eating at a restaurant uh, the other day. Uh, It's a restaurant that I've been at many times. Uh, And I was eating a meal that I've ordered many times. And I was realizing as I was eating it, um, you know what? Uh, I don't think that I'm going to order this again. Um, it's not as exciting as it once was. You may have had an experience like this. It's not as fulfilling as it was the first time I ordered it or the 10th time. Um, and while, while that's not really a big deal, uh, what, you know, what meal you order, uh, it hit me that I think this points to a much deeper reality. Um, the reality that deep down, not only do I want to be satisfied, uh, but really I think that I need to be satisfied. I need to be content. And I think that's a need. The need for contentment is a need that we all share And we see this, I think, uh, in how in many ways our search for contentment guides our lives. We see it in little ways, um, the the meals that we order. We also see it in bigger ways, in the job that we pursue, the spouse uh, that we hope for, uh, where we we turn out to live. Uh, And as we live our lives, in many ways, uh, I think that the decisions we make, we find out, uh, never will truly satisfy us. It leaves us wanting. We're regularly tired of things. Uh, We eat one meal until we get tired of it, and then we order a new one. Uh, We try one thing until we get tired, and then we try the next thing. Um, And it almost feels like we're we're kind of on a treadmill, kind of of living in this cycle, always pursuing the next thing, um, because I think uh, deep down we know that there's something that we're missing, right? And it leaves us with this sense of discontentment. Uh, something, uh, Something is out there that we're missing, something that we keep thinking that we'll find in the next meal, the next job, the next relationship, uh, something that if we had it, uh, whatever it is, uh, then we, would never, uh, we, would have, we wouldn't need to search for it anymore. And so eventually, I think, uh, I think that everyone comes down to the point of asking this question, um, probably multiple times throughout your life. You come down to the question, when will I find it? Or when will I be content? Or maybe even, you know, is it even out there? Or do I just need to grow up and, uh, and stop chasing rainbows? So everyone eventually comes to the point of this question, and, and I would argue uh, that the answer to that question is yes, it is out there. 
Um, and I think that this text is talking about it, right? Uh, <clears throat> we all have this desire for something beyond things that ordinary life can provide. Uh, and we, tr- you know, we try to run for this, uh, from this. We try to explain this away. We try to ignore it, but it's there. Uh, and in this text, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never hunger again. I am it, so come to me. So as we turn in our text, as we read about this dialogue between Jesus and his followers in Capernaum, uh, let's lean in uh, and, and really expect God uh, to reveal himself to us in this text. So as we, uh, as, we, as we dive in, you might know that the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament tells the story of Israel, uh, the story of the Jews. It's called the Torah uh, by Jews. And the Old Testament tells the story of the creation of all things, uh, of the creation of mankind. It tells the story of how Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden Uh, uh, our first father and mother uh, chose to eat fruit from a tree. They sinned. They committed this original sin and broke mankind from relationship with God. Uh, Sin entered the world, uh, and they and all of their descendants, including us, um, are are bound by sin uh, in this world of sin. Uh, But the Old Testament records the story that God didn't give up there. He didn't end the story. Uh, He promised redemption. We read prophet after prophet, book after book of God carrying his people through in anticipation of the fact that he would bring one to deliver them. He would bring one who would make their relationship with God right. So that's the Old Testament. The New Testament is the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the, the, the apostles uh, write letters, uh, and the book of John. The reason I say all that is because I want us to kind of place the book of John in this narrative of the Bible. The book of John is, is one of the first four books of the Bible, uh, of, the, of the New Testament, sorry. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and John uh, is, is written as the last of the four, and we know from how he writes that he was writing with a diverse audience in mind. He's writing about Jesus, about Jesus' life. He's writing a gospel, uh, the story of Jesus, and he frequently uh, refers to different things to explain, uh, and we kind of get a window into the fact that he is speaking to a diverse group of people. He frequently explains Jewish customs for the sake of his non-Jewish readers, He teaches Jesus as the Jewish Messiah uh, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament themes for the sake of his Jewish readers. Uh, And he also goes to great lengths to explain the incarnation of Jesus, about how Jesus is the word made flesh. God come to dwell with us here on earth for the sake of his Greco-Roman, the Greek Greek thinkers who came in from a philosophical background that says that that the material world is evil, right? The world is something that you need to escape from. Gnostics, Stoics, um, you might have heard of those things. And so we see that John writes into a pluralistic culture, and near the end of the Gospel of John, uh, we're told why he wrote it. It says in chapter 20, verse 31, uh, in the book of John, it says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, the, the Apostle John, who writes this Gospel, is, is deeply concerned that people would understand the truth about who Jesus is. In this particular passage, John chapter 6, uh, in verses 22 through 51, is a passage in which John records Jesus speaking quite plainly, saying, uh, saying to his followers, I am the bread of life. It's the first of seven I am statements uh, in the book of John when Jesus says, I am something, and here he says, I am the bread of life. He, is, he, Jesus, is concerned also with clearly communicating about himself that his followers would believe in him. So, uh, and as, as we start, I, I would, you, you would probably, you'd probably remember this is a long passage, um, and it would be impossible for me to unpack everything that's in it, but I think there's a few central themes 
uh, that, God, that God gives us in this, this passage that will point us to Jesus. And so uh, let's lean in. As we look, I think we'll see three things. Uh, we'll see how Jesus calls us to believe in him. He sees a need. Uh, he sees the need of our sin, and he calls us to believe in him. We'll see that uh, we are blind to who he really is. We are deaf to his call, that we can't hear his call. Uh, and then third, we'll see that God, despite that, despite our sin, reaches in and draws us into him to true belief. And so let's, uh, with that, uh, let's get going. Our text uh, starts in verse 22 with a crowd looking for Jesus. Right? And in the, to put this kind of in context within the book of John, uh, this isn't a, a passage that comes out of a vacuum. This is a part of a story. And Jesus has been doing his, his ministry for, for a while now. Um, he's, he's performed miracles. He's done things. We know that last week, uh, Marshall preached on the story of Nicodemus, uh, where Jesus teaches that one must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And then in chapter four, after that story, we see Jesus walking along the road, and he comes across this woman who's trying to drink water from a well, and he teaches her, listen, I have living water. Once you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. And then we see him heal a couple of people, a couple of miracles of healing. Uh, and then by the, so, so by the time we come to, to chapter 6, Jesus isn't some random guy that no one's heard of. He's got a following. We see that 5,000 people, which is probably, uh, it records 5,000 men, so there's probably fi- closer to 10,000 people. Um, commentators vary in their numbers, so I'll just say 10,000, uh, including women and children. There's this huge crowd of people who have followed him, uh, who have seen uh, what he's been doing, um, and uh, he's not done yet with his miracles. At the beginning of chapter 6, we see that this crowd has followed him to a mountainside, but they didn't bring any food with them. Uh, one boy had a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish, uh, and Jesus takes these. Uh, everyone, it's time to eat, and everyone looks around because they forgot to bring food, and Jesus says, here we go, divide all this up and, and feast. And after they'd ate their fill, uh, there were just five loaves of bread and two fish, they had 12 baskets of leftovers. So Jesus miraculously multiplies this food, provides for these people to point to himself. Um, and at this point, right, so that he's done these miracles, they've followed him, he's just given them all a miracle. At this point, they're, they're ready to grab him. It records uh, there that, he, that they're ready to grab him by force and make him their king uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 15. And so he withdraws from them. Uh, and with this, when the sun goes down, his disciples leave in a boat to cross the sea back to Capernaum. And Jesus, again, another miracle, Jesus walks on water to join his disciples in the boat uh, to go with them to Capernaum. And that brings us up to where we are. Um, this is a dialogue between Jesus and the crowd. Uh, this crowd remained until the next day. So they followed him to the mountainside. Uh, they, remain, they remained with him. Um, and this is a dedicated group of people. I mean, think about it. Um, I don't know if you've been dedicated fan at a rock concert and you stay, you know, keep clapping for the encore, right? This is a dedicated group. They followed him out of the town, around a sea, not like the Atlantic Ocean, but it's, you know, a sea about a big lake, right? Um, they, they follow him around the sea to this mountain. They don't bring any food. They don't bring anything with them, uh, and, uh, but he feeds them, and then they spend the night out in the wilderness, no roof over their heads. They're there because they're curious about who Jesus is. So this is a dedicated group of people, and then when they realize that Jesus isn't there, they jump in boats and go across to the synagogue in Capernaum, which is where our text picks up. And we see that their first curiosity, their first question in verse 25 for Jesus when they find him is this. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? They had seen his disciples leave, uh, but they didn't see how he had gotten there. And it's interesting to note uh, that Jesus' response to them doesn't answer their question. He could have told them the nature of his crossing. He could have told them that he walked on water to join his disciples in the boat, uh, which would certainly have impressed them, 
but he didn't do that. Uh, I think the way he explains shows that mere miracles can sometimes actually be uh, uh, detrimental to genuine faith. Because Jesus knows what they're really looking for and seeks to correct them. He says in verse 26, when they, when they say, you know, how did, when did you come here? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So he sees that they're really looking for him because he gave them food. And he redirects them to really the truth underlying the miracle of feeding the 5,000. He explains that they had failed to see the sign that this miracle was pointing to. Uh, This was pointing to the gospel itself, that God is pouring out blessing on these people through Jesus. Um, And you see, because they were hungry, they thought their need was just for food. Um, So they missed it. But Jesus points them to the deeper need that they're not even aware of, um, that they're working for food that will perish not for what will endure to eternal life. Right? They're working for something, uh, and that's why they followed him this far. Uh, they're searching for something, and it's clear that they don't really know what it is that they're searching for. And we see that they still don't understand this, uh, this in their response to what Jesus says. So in verse 28, they, send, they say then, okay, uh, Jesus is, he, he's, told, he's told them that they've been working for this food that will perish and that they need to instead work for the food that will endure to eternal life. And they say, okay, what must we do to be doing the works of God, right? And this is where I think we start to hear ourselves uh, as a part of this conversation. You can almost hear their thoughts behind this. They say, okay, I don't have it yet, but I can get it, right? When I find myself in the right job, I'll find it, right? When I find what, what I need to do, I will have it. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' response is quick and simple. Verse 29, he says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Not love your neighbor, uh, not care for the poor, not any number of good works that he could have given them. He says, This is the work, that you would believe in the one whom God has sent. You see, Jesus knew their need, right? He knows our need. There's this hunger that we have that nothing of this world will satisfy, a spiritual hunger that, that points to a gap that needs to be filled. See, ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Adam and Eve ate of that fruit of the tree, rebelling against God's good design for their lives, Adam and Eve, as well as all of their offspring, including us, like I said, have had, you know, we have this gap that needs to be filled, that nothing in this world will satisfy. It's a gap left by our sin, and a gap that if left unfilled, Jesus explains, will lead us to death. This food that you're working for will perish. No amount of knowledge, no amount of good works, no job, relationship, or possession will fill this gap. So Jesus points to the solution. He points them to himself. He points out the futility of their striving, that they're simply working for the food that perishes. He points them instead to the food that endures to eternal life. He tells them that this food is the gift that only the Son of Man, only Jesus himself can give to them. And he uses a metaphor of bread. I think it's obviously a metaphor. He points them to the true bread from heaven, himself, which is what truly gives life to the world. Timothy Keller, uh, who's a pastor up in New York, you might have heard of him, uh, explained it this way. Uh, He once pointed out that the metaphor of bread that Jesus gives for himself uh, is a metaphor in a couple of ways. Today, when we think of a meal, uh, we think of meat as being the center of that meal, right? Hopefully a lean protein. Uh, We think of meat being the center of our meals. Uh, Not so in Jesus' day. Meat 
right? Protein-rich foods were harder to come by. They were harder to work for. It was a bigger ordeal. So instead, the, the food that was the center of their meals was bread. Uh, and so when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he is saying to them something that signifies uh, life. It signifies strength. Uh, also, when Jesus talks about the bread from heaven, he refers them back to a story from Exodus 16 uh, when God cared for his people by providing manna for them to eat. Manna, this bread, uh, which rained down from heaven, and it's described as this light kind of sticky, uh, sweet bread. Exodus 16:31 says, the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And so Jesus looks, he uses this metaphor of bread. And in talking about bread this way, Jesus is giving a metaphor for something that's both powerful and pleasant, a spiritual metaphor for the contentment that God offers us in Jesus. See, Jesus saw their need, and he points them to himself as the solution. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we had this problem with sin. Jesus came to fix it, and here he explains to his followers that all they must do is believe. Problem solved, right? Not so. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to uh, make yourself think something uh, or make yourself believe something that is outrageous. You say, you know what? I'm just going to think that. I'm going to think that way now. It doesn't work. He says, believe. And they're like, you see this and immediately they respond. So what are you going to show us so that we can believe? Um, You see, even as Jesus came to these people and sought to explain who he was and that he was the solution to the problem of their sin, the solution to their search for contentment, The problem was deeper than a simple explanation could fix. When Jesus says, do not work for the bread that perishes, do not work for the food that perishes, excuse me, I think he's pointing uh, to their real problem, right? In their search to fill the gap left by their sin, they're searching in all the wrong places. They're looking only to their uh, worldly concerns. Remember, as soon as they find Jesus, the crowd has questions, and let's look at the questions they ask. In verse 25, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're seeking him not because he was God, but because he fed them. Right? Verse 28, they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They think that by doing good works, they can earn God's favor. They have no doubt in their own ability to make themselves acceptable to God. In verse 30, they ask him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? They think that if they see something with their own eyes, that that will be the key. Right? That will help them to believe. We'll talk about that. Uh, in here in just a minute. And then in verse 34, they say, sir, give us this bread always. Um, And they don't don't get it, right? Jesus has just talked about the true bread that comes from heaven and gives life to the world, and they're so focused on the gift that they miss the giver. Throughout this dialogue, their minds are on their own understanding, on their own concerns, rather than on who Jesus is. And let's dig a little deeper. Let me read uh, verses 30 and 31. After Jesus tells the crowd that they must believe in him, they then say this to him. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So these, 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 this crowd, these followers, uh, uh, are pointing back to the manna in the wilderness and saying essentially, see, in the days of Moses, you, you gave them bread to eat. What about us? And as apparently uh, ridiculous as that might seem, uh, to say to the guy who just fed 5,000 of you miraculously with bread, um, it's, it's not actually that unsurprising that they would ask this question. Because Jesus had just promised to provide something better. 
right? Something better than that, than that which was provided in the days of Moses. Jesus had, had promised them food that would never perish, like the manna had, right? And so, uh, as, let me, as the theologian D.A. Carson once observed, he said this, if Jesus is superior to Moses, as his tone and claims suggest, then should not his followers be privileged to witness mightier works than those seen by the disciples of Moses? So essentially saying, yeah, you, you gave us bread, but what you're saying is much bigger than what you already used this sign of bread to point to. Right, so it's, 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 it's understandable that they would ask Jesus this question. We know, though, that Jesus doesn't grant their request. He doesn't give them another sign. Uh, in fact, he couldn't because in so doing, uh, he would have simply been perpetuating their misunderstanding. He doesn't give them another sign because just as the people back then had misunderstood the sign of Moses, he corrects them. He says, listen, in the days of Moses, you didn't get that. You thought that it came because of Moses. It came from God, right? You're so focused on Moses and on your tradition, on the authority of Moses, that you forgot about God. So he says, you didn't get it then. In fact, they had misunderstood the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 just 24 hours earlier. When they tried to grab him uh, and make him king, they had been on the verge of seizing Jesus to make him their king, to make him what they desired. They were so focused on a political Messiah who would meet their needs that they'd missed the point. So Christ withdrew, uh, rejecting their presuppositions, rejecting uh, their misunderstanding. Uh, and listen, I, I, think, um, I think that we're not all that different from the Jews in this passage, if we really think about it. Uh, we do the very same thing. We look around at the gifts that God's given to others and we make demands of God, right? Um, God, if you really exist, how about you help me find a job and then I'll know that you love me. God, if you really love me, how about you help me find a wife and then I'll know. God, if you're really there, remove this suffering from my life so that I'll be able to believe. God, if you exist, show me a sign so that I might see and believe. I remember praying or thinking, every one of those things um, before I knew Jesus, uh, before God revealed himself to me. We look at our worldly needs. We look at our worldly concerns, at what we see right in front of us in the material world, and we expect for God to show up just the way we want him to. Similarly, back then when the Jews uh, were asking him these things, they were so focused on their own understanding, so focused on their own concerns, that they left no room, really, for anything to come from outside of them. They thought that all they needed to know uh, was what to do, all they needed was for God to show them what they wanted to see. And to, all they wanted was for God to fit into their little paradigm of the world uh, and God, and then everything would be fixed. They were stuck. And the problem is that, that in their search for an answer, in, in their search for contentment, even when Jesus answers this question and says, here is the solution, here's the answer for this search, they miss it. They're blind to what's right in front of them. They were blinded by their own concerns, blinded by their pride, blinded by their sin, and so they were stuck. As a man named Gordon Lightfoot once put it, not the singer, the author, um, he said this, so long as a man remains and is content to remain confident of his own ability without divine help to assess experience and the meaning of experience, he cannot come to the Lord. He cannot believe. Only the Father can move him to this step with its incalculable and final results. So they're stuck. We're stuck. But as we continue to read, uh, we see that God doesn't leave us stuck in our sin. He doesn't leave us without hope, but he promises to move us, to move our hearts toward Jesus. Let's look at this. 
uh, and bear with me, we'll kind of be jumping around a little bit. This is where it all kind of starts to come together. In verse 36, right after Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life and that whoever comes to him shall not hunger or thirst, he says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Now, if the success of Jesus' ministry rested on whether people believed upon hearing his words, then this verse makes it sound like Jesus' ministry was a failure, right? You've seen me and you haven't believed. Sounds like Jesus has failed, but that's not what determines success for Jesus. Jesus' confidence doesn't rest on a positive response of some well-meaning people, right? His confidence is in his Father to bring about the Father's redemptive purposes. In other words, we're not left on our own to attain uh, belief in these things. As we read in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Here, Jesus asserts that all who the Father gives will come to him. All, not all that the Father will be given an opportunity and may come to him. It says, all that the Father gives will come to me. And in verse 44, he explains how this happens. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father uh, draws him. So we see here that belief in Jesus is a gift from God who draws people to himself. God grants belief as a gift through special revelation, not by dragging people kicking and screaming, but by wooing them by the Spirit, by drawing them in to believe in Jesus. And furthermore, not only does God grant belief to those he has chosen, but he also assures that they will be preserved until the end. In verse 35, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When the crowd had told Jesus to give us this bread always, they were suggesting an ongoing need. Uh, But Jesus responds, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He doesn't say, take this and eat, and then come back tomorrow when you get hungry. He says, take this bread and you shall never hunger again. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no need for continued dependence on Jesus. What this does mean is that there's no longer that core emptiness, that gap that the initial encounter with Jesus uh, has met that the gap that Jesus has filled. In verse 37, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And in verse 39, he says that he will lose nothing of all that he has given me. So these are clear promises from Jesus that those who come to him by the will of the Father will never be let go. They will never be lost. They will never be cast out. And when it says in verse 40 that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, that's not the same thing as saying, I should be there in 10 minutes. It's not the same thing as I might be there in 10 minutes. You might have eternal life. It says, uh, it's, it's not a maybe kind of statement. It's a declarative, definitive statement. All who believe in the Son will endure to eternal life. This is repeated in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is the basis for, there's a well-known passage in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul writes this, another book of the New Testament. Um, you, you might have heard it. Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. He says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus You see, Jesus, in his obedience to the Father's will, will lose nothing of what the Father has given him. He will lose no one. 
he will not cast them out. So therefore, we see that not only does God promise to draw those he will to Christ, but he also promises to preserve them, keeping them in his love. Here's how one theologian puts it. In other words, he, and he's talking about believers. He's talking about people who are Christians, who have believed for eternal life. He says this. In other words, if any of them failed to achieve this goal, it would be the son's everlasting shame. It would mean either that he was incapable of performing what the father willed him to do, or that he was flagrantly disobedient to his father. Both alternatives are unthinkable. God will preserve us until the end. As we finish, let's look at what we've seen. Jesus sees the need in the crowd, and then he points them to himself. Even so, they're blind to see him, unable to believe. He doesn't leave them there, though, showing uh, that he grants belief as a free gift of grace. He is the true bread from heaven, given that they might have life. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, we were all dead in our trespasses, unable to bring ourselves up to life uh, with God. But God, being rich in mercy, raised us up to life with Christ. So as we live our lives, we live knowing that there is a gap in our lives. There is a gap in our hearts, a gap left by our sin, a gap that leaves us discontent. St. Augustine describes discontent this way. He says, The reason why we have the discontent we have is because our loves are disordered. Our loves are disordered. What really makes you who you are is not so much what you believe, think, or do, but what you love, especially what you love most. He says our loves are disordered. What you love most, you should love least, and what you love least, you should love most. And this disorder is a result of the fall. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and they chose to love the fruit more than God, they flipped the hourglass. They flipped love on its head. And this has all kinds of ramifications. Listen, it's not wrong to love your career. But if you love your career more than you love your family, then you'll destroy your family. It's not, love, or it's not wrong to love uh, profit. But if you love profit more than you love justice, then you will exploit your workers. It's not wrong to love your spouse. But if you love your spouse more than you love God, then you will suffocate your spouse. You will place them under the burden of an expectation that they can't possibly hold up to. You see, the problem is not that you love things too much, though. It's that you don't love God more. And listen, what God promises to do for us is, that he pro- is what he promised all along. You see, when Adam and Eve flipped love upside down, they flipped an hourglass, really that began counting down. As the sand started flowing through the hourglass, time started ticking. And then it says in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So all through the Old Testament, we see that that all is not lost. God had promised redemption. He had promised a savior. He had promised a Messiah. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent Christ to come in and reorient our lives, reorient our loves. And here he promises uh, that he is Uh, he will draw us to Christ uh, in order that our loves might be reordered, in order that we might love God more. You see, when you love God supremely, then and only then will you start to approach contentment. Then and only then will all of the other things that you love fall in their rightful places. See, when you eat of this bread of life that comes from heaven, when you come to Jesus and believe in him, you will have eternal life and you will never hunger again. St. Augustine later said, we are restless until we find our rest in thee. And Jesus is just that. He is 
our rest. He is our contentment. I want to make one last observation from the text. For all that we've seen about how wrong the crowd was, for all that we see about their wrong motives, all that we've said, uh, it's interesting to notice, I think important to notice, that Jesus' responses, rather than being stern and rebuke-like, Jesus' responses are remarkably gentle and loving. He wants them to know who he is. Right? He wants them to get it. Although he knows that the Father will draw to him those who he will, he doesn't just live life doing nothing. No, he preaches, he teaches, he implores with his followers to see what is true. And I'm convinced that while simple words can't change your hearts, simple words can't change your minds, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, words are what God uses to give us truths that really will change our hearts. Right? To paraphrase, to paraphrase something that Tim Keller once said, Jesus makes an actual offer to these people. He makes an actual offer to us. He doesn't say, I will give you this bread. He says, I am the bread of life. And if you think about it, when you eat, everything that you eat has died so that you might live. Right? It's, 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 this is how the food chain works. It's substitutionary sacrifice. Everything that you eat has died that you might live. With bread, not only does the wheat die, but as it's eaten, it's broken down, and as you chew it, it's broken down even further. So when Jesus Christ says, I'm the bread of life, this is my body broken for you, uh, what he's saying is, I am God become breakable. I'm God become vulnerable so that I could come and take the cross, be broken for your sins to win you back to my Father. The fact that we don't live for God and love him supremely is a problem that only could be solved by God sending his son to fix it for us. Jesus says, I have come that you might live. I am broken so that you could be made whole. I'm going to read um, close with this. I'm going to read this story. There's a, this is a book called uh, The Life of Pi by Jan, uh, Jan Martel. Jan, Jan. Um, uh, and, and it's a really interesting book. Um, I, I suggest that you read it if you haven't. I haven't finished it yet, but I got to this part. Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'll listen to myself. Practice what you preach, right? Um, but this, this book, the reason I want to read this is because this, this is a story about a, a boy named Pi, uh, the, life of, the life of Pi, uh, who considers himself to be uh, every religion. He's a Muslim, he's a Buddhist, he's a Hindu, he's a Christian. He, he considers himself to be every religion. He says they're all great. They all sound great. Right? And so he spends his life, though, he realizes that that won't work. Right? So he spends his life searching for meaning. And in, the, in this part that I want to read to you, um, he's, he's just been wooed over. He's about to, to call himself a Hindu when he finds himself in this, uh, in this Catholic church, talking to a Catholic priest named Father Martin. Um, and, and after they talk about the gospel, he, just, he can't understand Christ. He can't understand the fact that God would send himself to die. And here's what he says after their conversation. He's thinking this. He said, I was quiet that evening at the hotel. That a god should put up with adversity, I could understand. The gods of Hinduism face their fair share of thieves, bullies, kidnappers, and usurpers. What is the Ramayana but the account of one long bad day for Rama? Adversity, yes. Reversals of fortune, yes. Treachery, yes. But humiliation? Death? I couldn't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped naked whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified, and at the hands of mere humans to boot. I'd never heard of a, a Hindu god dying. When there was roll call, 
All Hindu gods cried, I, with resounding voices. Brahman revealed, did not go for death. Devils and monsters did, as did mortals, by the thousands and millions. That's what they were there for. Matter too fell away, but divinity should not be blighted by death. It's wrong. The world's soul cannot die. Even in one contained part of it, it was wrong of this Christian God to let his avatar die. That is tantamount to letting a part of himself die. For if the sun is to die, it cannot be fake. If God, is on, if God on the cross is God shamming a human tragedy, it turns the passion of Christ into the farce of Christ. The death of the sun must be real. Father Martin assured me that it was. But once a dead God, always a dead God, even resurrected. The son must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. The Trinity must be tainted by it. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful, spoil what is perfect? Love. That was Father Martin's answer. I couldn't understand it. But it truly is the most beautiful story that you'd ever, you're ever going to hear. Um, and I pray uh, that every morning when I wake up, I remember the truth of this story. That God would grant me faith to believe that it's true. And I pray that same thing for each of you. Uh, invite you to pray with me for that. Jesus is the bread of life. Come to him and you will never hunger again.